Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I'm the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this week's edition of the, uh, the Once Bitten podcast. Something a little different this week. Uh, this is not Bitcoin focused. This is um, more of an ode really to uh, the work of Sir Ken Robinson, who was very influential uh, to many people, um, myself and our own family, uh, very much so. Uh, it was after watching Sir Ken's talk, Do Schools Kill Creativity, that helped us gain the bravery and the confidence to, to take life more into our own hands with regards to our kids' education and change our lifestyle. Um, and take them out of formal education to, to cross that barrier to, you know, you, you, we're very much conditioned to think that school is the thing and this is how the kids are going to learn and this is going to prepare them for life. After watching Sir Ken's TED Talk back in, well, he delivered the speech in 2006. I think we caught it around, I, I think we caught it around like 2007, 2008, but then again in 2013 where... And by that time, he'd released a few other TED Talks as well. And I urge you to go and watch them all. His, um, his take on education is incredible. And um, very sadly, Sir Ken passed away uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Sir Ken last year and um, doing an interview with him. Uh, and to get to meet someone that had such a, an impact on your life and on your family's life was um, a great honor. Uh, Pre-recording, uh, Sir Ken met the whole family and he came in, uh, well, sorry, the whole family came in and, and spoke with Sir Ken on the, uh, on the Zoom call. And such a gracious, gracious man. And his work is so, so important. And I don't want um, that, that conversation that he was trying to inspire people to have to go, to go, you know, unheard and by the wayside. It's very important that um, that we keep this conversation open and moving forward about the education system and how it needs to change, and how you know families need to understand the the choices that are open to them. It's not just this one option. There are many options, and you should have the confidence to do what you like with your family and not be judged and bow to social the social construct around you. So this interview uh, was filmed and uh, was part of a home, uh, a global homeschooling summit that we put together last year. And I know it inspired a lot of people. We've had great feedback from families that have found uh, the, the renewed confidence to, to take life into their own hands with this regard of, uh, of how to educate their, um, their kids. And I thought it'd be a, um, a fitting time to to keep the conversation alive and to release the interview that I did with him last year, um, you know, since his passing. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, it's not a Bitcoin one, so this is um, much more uh, a, a rabbit hole around um, you know education and, and making decisions around that. So 
Yeah, you can find Sir Ken's books. He's written um, multiple. Uh, I think his most famous one is um, Finding Your Element, which uh, has also inspired many people to change their careers. So it's not just about you know making a choice about education. It's about making choices in life as a whole. So um, thank you again, Sir Ken. Uh, I hope you enjoy this one, guys. And um, yeah, not much more to say. Thank you, as always, for listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Homeschooling Global Summit. Today's guest is an internationally recognized leader in the development of education, creativity, and innovation. His 2006 TED Talk titled, Do Schools Kill Creativity? is still to this day the most watched talk of all time. He's a New York Times bestselling author of several books, including notable titles such as The Element and his latest work, You, Your Child, and School. He advises governments, corporations, education systems, and some of the world's leading cultural organizations. And in 2003, received a knighthood from Queen Elizabeth II for his services to the arts. Ladies and gentlemen, it's an absolute honor and a privilege to introduce Sir Ken Robinson. Sir Ken, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Dan. Now, Thanks for asking. <laughs> they, they say you should never meet your heroes, Sir Ken, but um, I guess the first question then is, uh, who are they? My heroes? Oh, I've got hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I said in the element, you know, that, that there's a difference between, uh, or a distinction at any rate, between heroes and mentors. And they can be the same people. And uh, they sometimes fulfill similar functions. You know, but heroes are, are, are people who inspire you in some way, who um, give you something to model yourself on or, or to, uh, to try and at least, um, if not copy, you know, but, but at least to take a, a powerful example from. And, and mentors are people you actually get to know and uh, who put a hand on your shoulder and, and up, you know, present you with opportunities and guidance. And great teachers do that. Great teachers do that. Great parents do that. Uh, it, it could be the next door neighbor. It could be the sports coach. It could be you know, the person at the pub. You know, it could be, you know, but somebody who sees something in you and helps to guide you. And they can be the same. And I've had lots of both along the way. I mean, I, I know a lot of the things I've done would not have happened, simply wouldn't have happened had I not encountered certain people on the way who saw something in me or something I was capable of or an opportunity I might have taken or opened a door that uh, otherwise I wouldn't have even known was there, let alone known how to open them. And so I'm a, I'm, I, I know what you say. I mean, I, it's, I take the implied compliment and thank you very much. But I, I have plenty of them, and I think anyone who wants to learn about the world around them does well to pay attention to heroes and mentors. Thank you. And um, yeah, I, I, I've got to ask this question because uh, I am on strict instructions from my daughters. And then we'll get into the real interview. But uh, what was it like to meet the Queen? It was fantastic. And I have a real genuine honour. And I mean, some people... You know, take a, a critical view of, of the honour system, and that's fair enough. Um, that's often tied up with people's views of royalty and, 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 the, and the political implications of, or otherwise, of that particular institution. 
But I think most societies, most communities have ways of recognizing people that they believe have contributed something that's of importance to the community or have uh, achieved something which is of importance to them. And that's true, you know, whether it's a scouting group or it's uh, a school or a family or an association or a society of some sort. When I was a, a professor at the University of Warwick, I always attended the graduation ceremonies. I mean, it was part of the role anyhow that, that you should. I mean, I was on the academic staff. It, it wasn't like I was flipping the coin between that and going to the pub. I mean, it was something that I always did go to. and It was, it was expected, but I was also I found it a pleasure to do it and an honor. And I've spoken at a, quite a lot of graduation ceremonies or commencement, as they call them in America. And I can remember, you know, when I was, at, uh, when I was graduating, I had friends at college who weren't very fussed about going to the graduation ceremony. When I was a professor at the university, I had students, and they said, I don't, I'm not going to bother going to graduation. I said, but why not? You know, I said, oh, well, it's, it's all pomp and circumstance. I said, exactly, yeah, yeah, it's all pomp and circumstance. And there are rites of passage in people's lives, and I think we've lost that to a degree. I'm not talking about tradition for the sake of it or ceremony for the sake of it. But our lives do follow patterns and courses, and, and there are rhythms. I mean, you know, I'm, I still feel like I'm essentially the same person I was when I was a student at college. I don't look exactly the same, you know, of course, but, you know, because your body changes and, and you have different life experiences. I'm not the same person I was because I have all these additional experiences these days, and you know, things I've been through and things I've thought since. You know, but in dispositional terms, I, I, I feel, I, I still know who that 22-year-old was, and I still kind of, you know, feel him when I wake up. And, and, but over the course of your life, you do go through certain um, important moments and courses. And I think ceremony has a place in that. It's why when people form partnerships, you know, civil or religious, according to their belief system, that they want to mark it in some way. It's when people pass, mostly people want to mark that. Some people don't. I remember years ago with some friends of ours, they, they lost a parent, and the, the, the father had left instructions not to have any kind of ceremony, not to have any kind of gathering. And I thought that was, um, um, it was something that, that deprived the people of, of a moment for, to, of reflection and a, a moment to focus and mark the passing of something very important in their lives. So on, on the upside, you know, there are, rituals and so on that, that we we go through and and this happens in the case of the the, the British honor system to be an example of that you know we have a, a notional you know, nominal head of state I mean actually a formal head of state and and it's a way in which the that culture recognizes achievement and in America I live in America now you know there's the president's medal and and you know there, the, I was just in Sydney Australia there's the order of Australia so so that's our system, and and so when this came up, uh, I mean, I didn't, you don't apply for these things, you know, you don't answer an advert in the paper and say, could I please have a night? <laughs> I had the following brand envelope with, the, with these notes in it, with the picture of it. No, you, you, you know, I was nominated, and 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 I, I was told that this this was something that I'd been awarded. I, I was told, I was told for all kinds of reasons. One was, it was a recognition of the work I'd been doing, uh, I, mean, I mean, not only the work I had been doing, but the work I had been doing, 
which was largely on the importance of promoting you know, broad approaches to education, in that case, particularly in the arts. But it was also a great honour for me and my wife. We've been together for 42 years. And we've always worked in partnership. So when I was knighted, she became Lady Robinson. And I thought, you know, that was a very important recognition for both of us. And also, I'm from a big working class family in Liverpool, you know, and um, it was a big honour to the family. And they, they felt it. We had a lot of parties and, and particularly for my parents' generation. My mother was alive then. You know, the, you know she has had deep memories of the roles of the royal family um, throughout her childhood. When I grew up, I mean, the royal family was this remote uh, group of people. I mean, there weren't documentaries, you know, following, following them around into the bathroom at that point. You know, there were, the, the, this was this remote figure kind of on Mount Olympus. I mean, the closest we ever got to the Queen was the stamps, you know, which had the face on there and, and, uh, and, and banknotes. So, you know, and I grew up with Christopher Robin going to Buckingham Palace and so there was a sort of mythology for my generation, for my parents' generation. And, and so it was, that was all wrapped. This, you know, I, I got to take my mum to Buckingham Palace you know, and, and, and to be there in, in the presence of the Queen. And, and so for all kinds of reasons, you know, it was a professional honour, it was a personal recognition, it was a, a great pleasure for the family. Um, I said, absolutely. So going to the palace was fantastic. And, and, and particularly for me, meeting the Queen. I mean, she's an extraordinary woman. She's been on the throne uh, longer than I think any previous monarch now. And she has been a thread through the history of my life and our life of my generation and has conducted herself, I think, with the most extraordinary sense of composure and public duty. And so she's a remarkable person in herself. And the actual event is like a, like a graduation ceremony. And, you know, you get to speak to her for a few minutes and she was very present and, uh, and uh, yeah, it was a lovely occasion. So, so Ken, um, if we talk about your parents very, very um, briefly, uh, they had some tough decisions to make themselves when you were very young. If, um, if you could explain to um, the audience um, what, what happened to you when, um, when you were growing up and the, the decisions that they had to make regarding your education. Yeah, well, I, I was uh, born in Liverpool in 1950, so I'm one of seven children. And there's no religious reason for that, you know, I think they, they just got on, you know. <laughs> we didn't have Netflix at the time, so, you know, there was no distraction. And we were very close-knit. Uh, it was, after, you know, it was after the, the, the aftermath of the war. I mean, even though we grew up in the 1950s, to my generation, the boomers, the war seemed a very distant, the Second World War seemed a very distant event. But in fact, it had only been over five years when I was born. And Liverpool was still ravaged by the, all the, um, the air raids. It had been absolutely devastated uh, in the way that London had been. And, it, and Britain generally suffered enormously economically and, and in other ways through unemployment and that was reeling from the impact of the Second World War. So we grew up in a, a devastated city in a, you know, in a poor part of it, uh, right next to Evans Football Ground. We as kids weren't aware of it. We just played on the streets and had a good time. You know, we, we didn't know that the family was having hardships, but all families were in that part. Well, they were anyway. Um, so, yeah, so I, I have just great memories of growing up there and of the family being very close, but there was a, you know, I was a fit kid and I used to run around a lot and play in the streets and my father was pretty convinced that I was the one who was likely to become the soccer player in the family uh, because we were right next to Evans football ground and the, the, the kind of ambition of most families around there was how somebody played for the team 
called Liverpool if you live the other side of the park. And uh, yeah, so I, I was fit and able and, and game and all of that. And but then in the in the fifties there was a, a big polio epidemic which swept across North America and a good bit of Europe, including the UK. And and I got it. I was the only person I think in the street to get it one of the few in the, in the neighborhood to get it and the only one in the family to get it. But I was four years of age and got contracted polio. And you know, it's a pretty devastating disease if, if, it, if it hits you hard enough. I found out subsequently that not everybody who gets polio even knows they've had it. And it certainly doesn't always result in paralysis, but it does in a significant number of cases. And if it, it's a disease that, it's a virus, you know, that affects your uh, nervous system, essentially. And, and it has the effect of, uh, of dislocating you know, the neurons from the muscles they control. So if you if it affects the muscles of your chest, you can't breathe, which is why people end up, end up in iron lungs. Commonly, it would affect you know, the muscles of your arms or legs or somewhere else, you know, I mean, there are many other places to actually, if you think about it. Limbs, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> Any of your 15 limbs can be affected. So, um, but in my case, it uh, I was, I spent eight months in hospital, and you can get some movement back. It's a different and long and not particularly relevant story. And I got some movement back in my. In, when I came out of hospital, it affected both my legs, and I had wore two calipers or braces, as we say in America. And it affected my right leg most. I had some strength in my left leg, and eventually, through physiotherapy and exercise, I got rid of the brace on my left leg. And but the right leg never recovered. So yeah, so I was then you know effectively you know, uh, paralyzed in that leg. Uh, at least I couldn't move, you know, they had no movement in it. So, you know, I was four, about, I came out of hospital at the age of five. I mean, we've had kids now and, you know, of course as a child, you don't have any perspective on that. You're just dealing with what's in front of you. But for my parents, I know it was absolutely devastating. And for the whole family, it was devastating. You know, to see a child go from a fit, able, you know, you know exuberant and energetic, uh, young thing running around full of the joys of everything and then the next day you know to be paralyzed it was a, it's a terrible trauma for a family to face and anyway so uh but i mean i didn't think of it that way i mean i was just you just deal with what's in front of you but i ended up, the result was when i came out of hospital uh, i went into uh special ed and i went to i was saying recently uh, that we hadn't really quite got the hang of uh, euphemisms in the 1950s so I went to the Margaret Bevan School for the Physically Handicapped. You know, there, you know, there, was, there was no no poetry around this, you know, and, and the so I was in school with people with all kinds of illnesses and, and disabilities of various sorts. And I was there until uh, I was eleven. Uh, so I was in in special ed for six years. We eventually went to move to another school in a different parts of the city, but same process. And yeah, and my family, you know, had, you know, were getting welfare payments for me, and uh, uh, we actually had um, a sponsor through the welfare system uh, who uh, sent us money every month. The guy called Mr. Robbins, who lived in the south of England, who my mother and father corresponded with all the time because we didn't have much cash, so we relied, you know, actually fairly significantly on, on this additional grant we got. It was just as a private sponsor. So that's why I'm saying, and I had wonderful teachers at school and met all kinds of other people, but it meant that the, well, it, it, firstly, it put pay to my career with Everton. You know, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't eligible for the team then. 
Um, I remember saying a while ago, I think I'd have a better chance now, frankly, the way Everton's playing. I think that uh, I think they they'd welcome me putting myself forward at the moment. But the uh, yeah, the upshot was that my you know, family had some big decisions to make. One of them was how much to, I suppose, cost it me. You know, because I it, it was a you know it's the it was in a city Liverpool. You know, this wasn't some bucolic idyll out in the countryside, you know, where I could sit and stare at ghosts, you know, the country streams. It was it was the city of Liverpool. And 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 the great thing about them was they they may have behind the scenes, but I was never aware of it and the family was never aware of them of them wrapping me in cotton wool. I mean they just let me go out and play in the streets. I had a wheelchair, went out and played with all the other kids. And uh, they they made every possible attempt, I think, uh, to make me feel that I was just the same as all the other kids. I mean, I got extra support here and there, but I wasn't treated to my, in terms of my own perception of it, any differently from anybody else. And that was really important, you know. I, I, they were brilliant. They were brilliantly good, I think, in the way they handled it. I mean, it must have been a terrible heartache for them. I know it was. Um, but this, the thing is, as well, that five years after I had polio, my father had an industrial accident and he broke his neck. So he was then a quadriplegic for the next, for the rest of his life, for 18 years. So, I mean, my, my mother was remarkable in the way she coped with all of that. And, because, and and, and, you know, you imagine she was, then had seven children, uh, one of whom was, you know, had polio, and a husband who was a quadriplegic. And, and, and uh, he was devastated, as you imagine. He was 45 years of age and a fit, strong man. And... Um, but it, it kind of evolved over time. We just became very close-knit and, and they were both you know, really strong together. So, yeah, it, it was not, wasn't an easy childhood, I wouldn't say, but it was a very happy one. And, and what followed was um, a, a career in, in academia and um, going on to be the, uh, the professor of, of Warwick and being very influential, uh, influential in um, forming the, the national curriculum of, of England. Um, what, what does it mean to you, like that, that word academic? Well, I should say, I, wasn't, I wouldn't say I was influential in forming the national curriculum in England. I was influential in opposing it and, <laughs> and complaining about it and seeing it as a terrible wasted opportunity, which I still do. Uh, but I was in a position to be critical of it. And, um, and I did chair a national commission uh, under the Labour government to try and make the government see, uh, the, the government of the day and subsequent government see, that there was a need to think very differently about education. The national curriculum was a terribly wasted opportunity, I felt, because it simply reinforced the status quo. Uh, and and it, it's always an, in, an interesting and difficult area to get into, because when I... The reason I was able to do this at all was that I met some very important people in my life when I was at school and I ended up being coached at the school. I've written about this in The Element in, for the 11 plus, which was an exam that people took in England at the time to decide which, it didn't last very long as it turns out, but it was an important moment in the history of education in the UK. People took an exam at the age of 11 to, to determine which secondary school they went to or which type of secondary school, the secondary modern or an academic or grammar school. And, and I passed it and went to the grammar school. And I had a very good time there. Um, I personally enjoy academic work. 
And I mean, I did a PhD, you know, and I, I, I was a university professor. It's not like I'm against it, <laughs> you know. Um, but, but what I have a problem with is it doesn't by any means suit everybody. It doesn't encompass the breadth of education that all children are entitled to. It actively marginalizes the talents and interests of a great many people. And, it's, and the system of grammar schools and secondary moderns was socially divisive. I happen to benefit from it. But that doesn't mean you can't therefore be critical of it. And, uh, you know, some people I think simplistically say, well, you know, here's, here's somebody pulling the ladder up after himself. And I think it, it's, a, it's a, a completely um, uh, wrong-headed argument to say that. Uh, I think when you've benefited from the system and you can see how you benefited from it, and that so many people, so many others did not benefit from it, then it's incumbent upon you to argue for a better system which will benefit more people, which is what I was doing. But academic, to me, is, well, it's not just to me, I mean, it, it's, it's a term that's come to be associated with a, a particular sort of intellectual activity. I mean, it's named for the, you know, for the academy, and... Uh, an academy, you know, in ancient times, uh, the academy, the original academy in ancient times, was the was a, a school of of scholars and students who shared ideas and argued philosophically about the purpose and meaning of life and uh, and the nuance of, of human understanding. And it, it's it's, but it's become over time associated with a particular type of reasoning. It, it's it's. It's preoccupied, when we talk about academic ability, we don't mean intelligence in general. It means, it means more specifically, a particular type of logical deductive reasoning. It's the sort of um, uh, analysis which, you know, which is based on uh, the, uh, the ordering of, of often linear concepts. It's normally conducted through verbal or, uh, verbal or mathematical reasoning. It's particularly preoccupied with what philosophers would call proposition knowledge, you know, knowledge that something is the case. And I could you know, distinguish that from, you know, it's sort of knowing that, you know, as opposed to, as distinct from knowing how. Uh, so it's why we've come to think of academic and vocational education as being two different sorts of activities. You know, that academic work is more desk-based, more theoretically based. It's why academic work principally consists of people writing essays and, and so on. Um, it's, it's a book-based activity. Nothing wrong with it, by the way. I mean, I enjoy it. And, and it, it's something that plenty of people do enjoy and prefer and something that all people can actually benefit from if it's taught to them in the right way and it's engaging in the right way. But there's much more to human intelligence and much more to human achievement than theoretical and desk study. It, there's much more to academic work, actually, than just sitting and writing essays. Properly conceived, it can be a hugely creative area of human activity. But there's the whole area of applied knowledge of, of, of putting ideas uh, into forms that you can explore and implement in, in different ways. It, it's you know, the whole world of, not just of craft, but the, well, the whole world. You know, we, we sit here communicating through a sophisticated technology, you know, through different time zones in different parts of the world, sitting in the middle of different cultures, uh, in a way that would be inconceivable without the human capacity to think both in abstract and practical terms, not only to have ideas, but to realise them materially. And education, for all kinds of reasons, has become preoccupied with the theoretical aspects of, 
uh, of learning uh, more than with its practice and more also than with the ways in which ideas intersect and how culture interpenetrates the, the different ways that people come to think, believe and act in the world. So it's, it's, I, I think academic work is important in itself. I just have deep reservations, I think wholly justified, in conflating it with, with either the whole of intelligence or believing it to be the only form of intellectual activity that children should have cultivated. And if, that, if that's um, how you see academic, um, how would you define uh, the word creativity? Well, creativity is uh, it's a function of intelligence. And there are three uh, related terms here. The, lot of, the reason I'm saying it this way is that there are a lot of misconceptions about creativity. I should say, just, just by the way, in advance, is that I, I, creativity has not always been my thing. You know, it's, it's not that I, you know, kind of was born into Liverpool thinking, you know, one of these days, you know, I'm going to sort this whole creativity nonsense out. <laughs> the whole stretch of my life where I didn't think about it at all, you know. And if I did think about it, I wasn't very interested in it. Um, but, but, you know, you, you become interested in things which, which obviously, which attract your attention at the right time and in the right way. My, my way into this was that when... I was at school, and I, I wasn't planning a career. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Absolutely no idea. I mean, clearly the centre forward option had been shut down pretty hard. But I haven't thought about that. I mean, it wasn't that I was going around moping, thinking that's it with me and Everton. I was four. I mean, I, I didn't know where Everton was. I, I crossed my mind. It was just my, my dad, you know, had a, a view he told me later on. Um, but I was just doing what was in front of me when I was at school. I mean, this is Liverpool in the 1950s and 1960s. My big preoccupation was the Beatles. You know, they, they, I was 13 when Love Me Do came out, and it's hard to convey the excitement that band created, not just globally, but especially in Liverpool. I mean, every record they came out with was an event, and it was, you know, it was the 1960s. There was a lot of stuff going on there, you know. And as, as we became teenagers, there was all that, all... You know, the growth of the counterculture, what was happening in Vietnam, you know, rock music, and social turmoil, it was all of that. You know. So I didn't know what I was going to do at all. I was just getting through school and hanging out and, you know, um, and, and enjoying being with the family. And uh, at one point, I remember, I, I, I sent off for the application forms to become a, a, a manager at, uh, the, at the, I think it was the National and Provincial Bank. I don't know what it's going to do. I thought, I don't know, go and work in a bank or something, or I'll, I'll, be a, a, I'll go into a management program. But I, when I was at school, I started for this, again, I've written about it, but I started with some friends of mine to put plays on. We didn't put plays on at school. We read plays. That's part of the academic thing. You know, you treat a play script as a piece of literature rather than a performance. Uh, so we studied plays, but we didn't act in them. So we decided, the group has decided, we want to put some plays on. And the, the short version of this is I ended up directing them. And I really enjoyed it. And, and they did. And we, we not only put the plays on, we, we printed the tickets, we sold the tickets, we built the set, we went around selling tickets door to door. Uh, and we did, I think we did for four years, I think, I think it was. Uh, maybe it was three. Um, the last two years at school, and then we did it the summer after school. We came back and put another play on. And, uh, and that was a really... Uh, engaging and formative experience for me. It wasn't a single career in it, I just really enjoyed doing it. 
But uh, I then applied uh, on the advice of the school head teacher to uh, a college called Bretton Hall in, in Yorkshire, uh, where I could train to be a teacher, and because he thought I'd make a great teacher, and that I could study English and theatre, which is what I did. Again, with no long-term view, he just, I took, it, took him in his word, he said, I think you'd be a wonderful teacher, uh, have you thought of doing this? And I thought, nope. So I applied to this college and I was accepted. And I'm saying this not because I think people ought to be fascinated with my biography, but because I think that's how this often works. It's like mentors, heroes. You know, when you ask about my heroes, the Beatles, absolutely, up on a plinth. You know, absolutely. And I got to meet Paul McCartney. I had dinner a few weeks back with Ringo Starr. You know, I have got to meet some of my heroes. And not just them, but others besides. You know, but, you know intellectual heroes and sporting heroes. It's been a, a, one of the good fortunes of my life that I've, met people that I've admired hugely. And they have not disappointed for the most part. Um, but it's like that. And this idea, I've often talked about it, that life is linear, is plainly nonsense. The idea that, um, I often ask audiences as I go around these days, um, to put their hands up if they're doing now exactly what they thought they'd be doing when they were 15. Nobody. What happens is you come to write your CV, your resume, as we say in America now, you know, but, um, and you have to set this thing out on two sides of paper. So, you, you know, you, you put key dates in and pick some things out in bold and some in italics. And, and the whole idea is to try and convey that you have been conforming to this strict strategic plan that, you've, that you, you know, composed in your late teens. And that here you are, as night follows the day now, you know, running a bird sanctuary in Bali, you know, as you know, as intended. And... <laughs> And of course, it's not like that at all. Your life is a constant process of improvisation. It's, it's what's the next thing uh, or that. Or you do something because you can't not do it or, and you turn away from it because you're too worried about doing it. It's like you with your kids. You, know, you decide, I'm going to take off and I'm, we're just going to do this. Um, and now you're doing it. You know, it looks like it was the most natural thing in the world, but it's a huge heave to do that. And most people don't do what you've done. Um, and there are all kinds of things you have to take on board, but, but no, it's like you said, you saw the talk I gave or you read, you read a book and then they, they try to trigger something. You didn't wake up that morning thinking that was going to happen. Uh, it's about being open to possibilities and seeing what could be if, if you kind of went down that path. And sometimes people open doors for you didn't even know they were there, you know, as I said earlier. So, um, now that's, um, I mean, I think that's just the natural way of it, that we, create our life as we live in. And so when I was at school, I wasn't thinking about these things. I was doing plays. I, I got to this college because it's just I should, and I loved it. Uh, it was 1968. It was a Georgian mansion in the middle of the Yorkshire countryside. There were 700 students. Uh, that There were two-thirds women, one-third men. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? You know, and I, we, it was great. And it was the time when... Higher education was paid for by your local education authority, so it was no burden on my family for me to be there. And I met fascinating people. And, and over the course of that, I became interested in why drama wasn't more commonly taught in schools, or why it was low status when it was. And that led over the next several years, after I left college, I did a PhD in that area because it was of interest to me personally. I didn't think it was going to take me anywhere. It was just a personal Everest I wanted to climb. 
But I then, during the course of the search for it, I got a job and I met other people and it, and it all started to open out and I got very interested in the arts overall in education, not just theatre. Um, and I wrote a report with others in the 80s, the early 80s, called The Arts and Schools, which was uh, a concerted attempt. It became a very successful statement in the end. But it was a concerted attempt to set out why it's of equal importance in education that children should practice and study the arts as they should the sciences and the humanities and languages and mathematics. And, and it became important to say that because in most school systems, the arts are not equally important. Uh, there's, and even in the arts, there's a hierarchy, as I said in the TED talk, that uh, art and music are normally seen as more important where they're taught at all, um, are, are more important than theatre and dance. Uh, it's like your kids saying in school in France, they get 45 minutes of art a week. Uh, I bet they do a lot more mathematics than that. And uh, so why is that? Why do we think of it that way? So we wrote this report called The Arts and Schools for the World Banking Foundation. It had a big impact. And among the reasons that the arts mattered, among the reasons I believe they mattered, is because of their roles in the development of creative intelligence. It's not the reason the arts matter. It's one of the reasons they matter. It's not, the arts don't matter because they're the creative bit of the curriculum. Uh, they matter for all kinds of reasons, one of which is they develop certain aspects of our creative intelligence, but they have a, a big role in a broader conception of intelligence. They have a major role in our engagement with the cultural traditions, norms and vitality of the world that we're part of. They have a major role in helping us to engage with and uh, formulate our feelings about the world. Um, but I've always been very keen to say too, that's not the same thing as saying that the arts are the emotional bit of education. They're not. Science affects the way we feel. The arts also affect how we think. It's a much more complex equation than simply that. Um, but we tried to set out in this report all the different ways in which the arts matter and, and, and how they connect to all the other parts of the curriculum. Um, and it's interesting because outside of education, people aren't so troubled by these distinctions. Only in schools where we decide, well, we're going to do art on a Thursday and science on a Tuesday. And um, so we have to make sure that they're different. Uh, and actually, they're connected in all kinds of ways, which is surprising. So, uh, but when uh, the Labour government got in in 1997 in the UK and continued the assault, I think, on a broader curriculum, uh, it was time really to. And, and, to, to say something more concerned about creativity because the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, kept making speeches about the importance of creativity and then was uh, with the Secretary for Education at the time uh, presiding over education policies which seemed custom-made to suppress it. So this seemed to me to be a contradiction that should be pointed out to them. And the, the upshot was that I and others approached the government and said, look, if you're serious about creativity, get serious. And if you're not serious, stop talking about it, because this is confusing everybody. So they asked me if I would convene a group to set out carefully what creativity is, why it matters, and what can be done in schools to cultivate it, which is what I did. And we produced a report called All Our Futures, Creativity, Culture, and Education. So at that point, I started to focus specifically on creativity as a kind of a set of generic ideas and practices in education. And so... Uh, as I stated, there's imagination, which is where this all comes from, uh, which is the capacity to bring into mind things that are not present. And it's a very powerful and unique set of capacities that human beings 
have. I, I don't mean that we have it exclusively, but the degree to which we have it is, so far as we can tell, unique uh, among others, uh, all other species. Creativity is putting imagination to work. It's, it's, it was once described as applied imagination. I think that's pretty good. Uh, the difference is you can be imaginative all day long and not do anything. To be creative, you have to do something. Uh, the other way to put it is that creativity is the process of having original ideas that have value. And an innovation you could think of as, as the implementing uh, creative ideas um, in different ways. So an innovation tends to be is sometimes as well a kind of more incremental process of change. Uh, not always. So creativity is that. It's the process of having original ideas that have value and all three bits of it matter. It's about original, original thinking. It doesn't have to be original to the whole world. You, know, you don't have to have an idea that nobody ever had. It has to at least be original to you. It has to put your head into a different place. I mean, I was saying, it, I mean, it wouldn't be right, would it, to take you know, a five-year-old's drawings which, where they're experimenting and come up with things they haven't come up with before and, and kind of sneer at them and start showing this kid slides to the roof of the Sistine Chapel and say, check this out. <laughs> Don't bother me with this kind of infantile nonsense. You know, the point is, you have to apply relevant criteria to, to, to judging it, um, which is why I'm saying it's about original ideas that have value. So part of it is having fresh ideas that could be new to you, to your community, to your field, maybe to the planet. Um, but a key part of creative work is that you're applying critical judgment to it. Like, is this any good? Is it, is it um, does it work? And that's not an abstract idea. It's like when you're writing a sentence, you end up crossing something out saying that's not the right word. Or you're working on a business plan or you're adjusting the seasoning in a dish. Like, is it right? Is it right? Or you're working on a painting or you're doing a piece of design or you're planting stuff in the garden. Always, you know, you're kind of thinking, it, it's the natural way of it. But a key part of it is knowing what the, what the criteria are to apply. And in the world of invention, for example, in technological innovation, it's often the case that an idea that's really fresh and original to people um, can stump them. And they can say, well, what on earth is the point of that? Why would you have that? Uh, it was famously said, you know, when um, mobile phones were being developed, there were people in the telephone industry who were deeply skeptical, saying, why on earth would a person have a telephone number? Why? I remember when emails first came out, I was one of the leading critics. I was confident it would never catch on. It's one, it's one of my many <laughs> de devastatingly astute predictions about future technology. You can't tell with these things. Um, so it's a, it was once described, creativity was once described as a process of successive approximations. I mean, that's a pretty good way to describe the process of it. But the point about it is that when people say you can't define creativity, uh, it's because they haven't thought about it. Uh, you can. Uh, I'm not saying that's the only definition. It's the one I find very helpful. But we know quite a bit about how the process works. There's always a bit of mystery in here about where the ideas come from. Um, in fact, there's always a bit of mystery about you know, where, how does consciousness exist in this you know, bag of bones and flesh. Um, uh, so I'm not saying we solved everything, but we know quite a bit about how it works, what stimulates ideas, what prevents them, what can encourage them, how you can evolve and develop them. And it's like we know quite a bit about literacy, but we're still not really quite sure how it is we come to speak.
why you can't teach a child to do it. I mean, there are people who studied it and know much more than you and I do about it. Uh, but there's still an inherent mystery about how all this really happens in, in, in this kind of structure. But we know enough about creativity to know how much it matters, how, how much it's the heart of human experience, how you know, the, our collective creativity gives rise to what we call culture, our common ways of seeing the world in communities which are mutually influential and internally influential. So it's why we call the report All Our Futures, Creativity, Culture and Education, because the three are all intermingled. Well, and and that that TED talk was um, it's been so influential in many families that I've met, uh, whether they're world schooling or homeschooling or unschooling or alternative schooling, um, democratic schools, and and such things. And um, in your latest book, you, your child, and school, which um, thank you, I've read, it's amazing. Um, you. you you devote uh, like a a section um, to alternative education, and mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that you, you've spoken too much about it before, like the homeschooling or unschooling and that, that kind of modern movement. Um, could you give us um, a little bit of insight into, into what you've found there and um, it being a viable option for people uh, considering al- alternative education? I, I, I actually said, you're right. I, I, in the new book, You're a Child in School, I do talk more about it. I have said some things about it in the past in, excuse me, in creative schools. Uh, the, I remember saying creative schools, I went to a meeting in LA a few years back of alternative education and there are all kinds of different groups and organizations which are kind of grouped under this heading alternative education and what they have in common is that they uh, that, their, that their strategies and approaches are customized to the students, the individual students, as opposed to students having to adapt to the program. Now, they look at individual students and say, what would work with you? What are your interests? Uh, how, or, and, and even, even if, if they're working on ideas which they may not initially uh, find interesting, how can we get you interested in this? How can we engage you? you know, what's your what what what's your skill set? What what sort of you know? What are your attitudes? What are you bringing to the table? So they they have the student uh, students' capacities and interests and personalities at the heart of the, of the strategies. Uh, they're flexible and uh, and diverse and various in the way they tackle things. They recognise the importance of teachers and mentors and give them proper support and are often close links to the community. Um, so they're per- very personalised, very customised, very diverse, and they work for the most part. And I mean, it's like alternative medicine; some aspects of it work, some don't. And, uh, but you know, but people tend to think of alternative medicine as uh, you know something that's loosely based on kale. And the the, the fact is that the, the alternative medicine is something which also reaches deep into conventional medicine. There are plenty of people in. I've spoken a lot of medical conferences of late, and to medical practitioners about the need to humanize medicine. And there are plenty of people in the mainstream profession who are deeply critical of the uh, data-driven, impersonal, rather mechanistic approaches to the diagnosis and treatment of people with a whole variety of illnesses. And, and, and the failure of doctors often in the way they're trained these days to recognize that the people they're dealing with are human beings, 
uh, with complex feelings and physiologies which are interrelated and that people recover best when you look in their eyes and understand really what's going on with them. And, and that this isn't only a question of looking at a computer screen while the patient sits beside swathed in electrodes. You have to speak to the person and get to know what their condition is and what their, uh, you know, what their existential state is as well as the, the physical symptoms they're, they're describing. Um, you know, people are seeing big results when they think differently like that. So it isn't just about, um, you know, people using unusual herbs uh, and 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 uh, and buying odd crystals and thinking that's alternative medicine. I'm not, I'm not being disparaging any of that, by the way. I'm just saying that that it isn't. There isn't a strict demarcation, and I'm saying in education too, there have been plenty of people for generations who are, have been practicing in public education systems the sorts of techniques and applying the sorts of principles that these days we would label under the heading of alternative education. It isn't like there's a strict border between these two sorts of activities. In fact, on the contrary, a lot of my work has been trying to get some of these more learner-centered principles spread into the mainstream of public education. But there are plenty of people there who are doing it already, uh, but who are doing it in spite of the dominant political culture in education, not because of it. But the, the, what, it's always interesting to me that you know, these practices, which are customized, personalized, humanized, uh, often have tremendous success. And it's just interesting that, that this is called alternative education. I mean, if education were like this, then as a whole, there'd be no need for the, the alternative. But the, there have always been, I mean, I, I suppose the bottom line is that since the mid 19th century, for the most part, uh, countries have have evolved mass systems of public education. There weren't many before then. And these systems grew up in the context of industrialism and often in the interest of industrialism. And the you can see it in two ways. One is that the organizational culture of schools is highly reminiscent, indeed often modeled on the principles of industrial production. That's to say schools are organized and national systems are organized on principles of supply and demand. Uh, they're organized, it's why, for example, in the 1960s, there were very few university places compared to now because not so many people were required to have degrees because the industrial economy didn't require that. Uh, there was a greater need for manual work and for technical work. As the knowledge economy has grown, so higher education has expanded because the recognition is now that mo more people will be doing what's often thought of as intellectual work rather than manual work. So suddenly the, um, you know, the floodgates have been thrown open uh, into higher education. Actually, floodgates open out, don't they? The gates have been thrown open into higher education. Um, and, and this isn't because there's been some remarkable improvement in the intellectual capabilities of, of recent generations. So they're now all able to benefit from universities, whereas the boomers were not capable, it's that there's a need for people educated to a higher level, a greater need than there was. So it's always been, it's like turning a spigot on, you know, it's always about supply and demand. So that's one, it's linear. And you see that especially in the way schools are organized and we're testing, you know, you get through this gate, you get through that gate, you get through that gate, and eventually you get to the doors of higher education. If you make the grade, you get in. Uh, it's industrial in the sense too, that it's focused on a particular type of product, the academic graduate. Um, the system's not designed to produce dancers, musicians, trombonists, you know, and, and street performers. That's not what it's for. Uh, it's to produce people who can go and get a university degree. And, and there are 
other routes, people who don't, can't make that cut, uh, which are of lower status. Um, and like most industrial systems, it produces a huge amount of waste. You know, people who don't make it, and and then we don't know what to do with them. You know, dropouts, kids who uh, who don't graduate uh, on time. People get put into remedial programs. Uh, people who are seen as somehow the kind of detritus of the system. Uh, and all of these are choices that have been made in the way the system has been put together. And it's why they work for some people, and they do work very well for some people. They would. They're designed to work for those people. And they work less well for lots of other people. And even, by the way, for the people they do work well for, uh, these days they're starting to fail them because of the sheer amount of stress that's being generated in the system to keep up with it. Huge amounts of emotional turmoil, of depression being generated by the system. And I often say this to politicians you know, who, uh, who ask me about it. They say, you know, we have all these problems of non-graduation. We have stress in schools. We have high rates of teacher turnover. Uh, we have uh, higher levels of dissatisfaction among employers these days. Um, you know, how, how can we solve these problems in education? And I'm not being facetious when I say, stop causing them. That would help. Don't do it. These, system, these problems are caused by the system. And, and if the system were to change, then it's like we're looking around at all these problems of cardiovascular disease and obesity. You know, how can we solve these problems? Stop generating this toxic diet uh, that's being driven by, um, you know, malpractices in agriculture. And, you know, the, the kind of ultimate um, irony of the capitalist system here, you know, that we are killing the very people um, who are buying these products through the products we're creating for them. You know, we are creating the, this is not, uh, a problem that has arisen from nowhere, you know, by some malign universe. We are doing this, so we can stop doing this if we chose to. And uh, so, uh, I don't want to overcall it, but I'm saying that the, 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 the education systems were designed with particular purpose in mind. They evolved. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't believe already in, in, in the, you know, there being a kind of single conspiratorial view. There have been key people in the histories of education in our different countries, different cultures who have been deeply influential on the course they've taken. But eventually it enters the, the cultural bloodstream and people just think that's what education is. That's how it works. And it doesn't have to work that way. That's the point. And what I say in, in, in uh, New York Times School is that there's a difference between learning, education and school. Kids love to learn. We are rapacious learners. Look at your kids now, you know, speaking French fluently. Why? Because you immerse them in French culture. They got excited by the whole idea. And you, know, you didn't have to sit there, presumably, and go through irregular verbs with them. They'll just pick it up. You know, I mean, we've got a grandchild. I'm not going to set her down and start teaching the subjunctive. I mean, she'll, she'll figure it out, you know. Um, uh, you know, kids love to learn. Learning is the natural process of acquiring new skills and understanding. Education is an organised approach to learning, a more intentional system of learning. And a school is a community of learners. That's what the original academy was. It's a, it's a community of learners, people who come together to learn with and from each other. Kids love to learn, they don't all get on with education, some have a very bad time at school. And the problem isn't kids or learning at school, it's the way we do school. And so alternative education is a whole um, uh, collection, a whole community of institutions who are, and of people and of projects, initiatives, who are rethinking how we can do school in a way which is consistent with and nurturing of the natural conditions and natural impulse to learn. 
And if you can keep the flame of curiosity alive in children, the one they're born with, you keep kindling that, they'll just keep learning. Uh, it, it's what drives learning, the curiosity to find out about yourself and the world around you. And, and it's a great achievement of, of, of public school systems that we've managed to snuff that out in so many kids. You know, and, and it isn't, it's not there. It's, we blow it out because we create conditions in schools, which teachers don't want either, for the most part, by the way. It's a systemic issue. We create conditions in school which suck the oxygen out of the room. And you can see kids just kept getting lifeless. And so, you know, in the worst case, we start to medicate them and say, you know, just pay attention. And I'm, 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 I'm with the kids, and I will make it interesting, you know, and I will. And, 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 and this isn't, you know, this isn't is it, an, an unprovable theory, and there's no one way to do it. I mean, I went to a brilliantly good academic school. There are some brilliantly good academics. I'm not saying that's not the point. It's about balance. But the school I went to, you know, it, it, it was deficient in other areas. I mean, there should have been better arts programs, and then we have to make that happen. There isn't just the one way to. It's like there's no one great way to be a rock band. There's no no one great way to be uh, to have a restaurant. There's no one great way to decorate your house. There's no one great way to create a garden. You know? There are, but there are principles on which we know people are more likely to flourish than not. And and among the ones I see are in, in school in our education systems that there should be a more, greater emphasis on diversity because people are highly diverse in our talents and our interests and dispositions. Um, they should be more creative in the sense they are capable of generating new forms of ideas, new ways of thinking, and they should be non-linear. You should recognise that life isn't a straight line. To reference your talk again, um, uh, your original one in 2006, and I'm going to read so I don't get any of this uh, completely wrong, and uh, I want to put it into context um, for those listening because uh, you know your remarks were delivered uh, at the same time that uh, Al Gore delivered his um, speech and his findings on climate change back in 06. And you say, our education system has mined our minds in the way that we have strip-mined the earth for a particular commodity. And for the future, it won't serve us. We have to rethink the fundamental principles on which we are educating our children. You then close out the talk with, our task is to educate their whole being so they can face this future. We may not see this future, but they will. And it's our job to help them make something of it. So, you know, here we are 13 years later, and, um, you know, what, what has changed, Sir Ken? Where, where do you see education now? And um, where do you see it? In your mind's eye, where is education going to be in, like, five to ten years' time? Because if you look at a picture of, of school 100 years ago, it looks very much the same as we have now. Can you lead us, paint us a picture of, of where you think it needs to go and what it should be looking like? Well... I think that firstly things are changing and things do change. When people talk about changing the system, they often say that with a sense of hopelessness, implying you know, it can't change and it doesn't, but it really does. And, and although schools do in some respects look as they did 100 years ago, they are also very different in lots of ways. Um, I mean, we've still got rows of desks in many schools and similar sorts of layout. Um, uh, but there have been lots of things going on. I mean, they, to me, there's, a, there's a, a big shift happening at the ground level. And it's being held back or restrained by public policies, which are intent in most countries still on imposing a system of standardisation. 
Um, but the, the, the real shift is happening, I say, at, at the local and ground level. And I, I know this because uh, I travel a lot. I go to um, all sorts of events. I have all kinds of conversations and contacts. I'm just talking about my own experience of this. And I know, I mean, to just take the example of the TED Talks, that that first one uh, has been seen online about 58 million times. It's been, well, that, that's not the number of people who've seen it, that's the number of times it's been clicked on. But it gets shown, as you know, to rooms full of people, whole conferences, events, workshops, I don't know, some multiple of that number. There's a the number of people who've seen it in 160 countries. And, you know, I was recently in Australia, I was in Kuala Lumpur, I was in Dubai, I've been in Qatar, you know, I, I mean, I, in Mexico. And I speak to large groups of people, you know, they're not booing me off the stage, you know, they're not coming up harassing me and saying, you've destroyed my life, how dare you? <laughs> um, and so I know from that direct personal experience that people are changing, things are resonating, and that change does happen and sometimes it's slow and sometimes it can be um like a sudden landslip like something everything just shifts and an example i often give is that in america uh, over the past few years every state in the union has passed legislation to prove same-sex marriage and and i'm delighted about it but the reason i mentioned it is because 20 years ago that was unthinkable just unthinkable wasn't on the agenda uh, and and now it was pretty much passed on the nod I mean a lot of people worked very hard a lot of people suffered for it uh, as individuals but there was a shift in the culture it didn't happen because members of Congress had a retreat in Aspen and decided it was time to go back and sell this important issue to the electorate who failed to understand it it was the other way around. People started voting differently. And it's what's been happening with the green movement. It's been a long time coming, but it's moving. You know, the, um, the response that, that Greta has provoked, uh, she couldn't have done that. I mean, it's brilliant and brave and extraordinary and remarkable that she has been the, uh, the kind of lever that shifted that massive opinion um, but it was building and if she'd been a lone voice she'd still be a lone voice but she has acted as a focus for a lot of people's anxiety energy passion and vision and um, and I think that well, well firstly it, 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 it it's about giving people permission to change letting them know change is possible that there are options, and then empowering them, if you can, to do that. So I see a lot of change happening. I said in creative schools that you can make changes within the system. An awful lot of what goes on in schools of all sorts isn't the result of legislation, it's habit. People do this because they always did that. And in some respect, it's like opening the, the door of a birdcage and the birds just sit on the, on the perch and think, well, you know, we, we like it in here. Um, and some take flight. And, and, and there are, there's a lot of space for innovation in schools as it is. And you can see that when you get, and I often do see them, visionary head teachers, passionate classroom teachers who come together, and they always have done, come together and decide to do things differently. 
and or teachers as I often say to teachers if if for the kids you're the system and you know if if you do something different this morning you've changed the education system and, and it, it's about that building up cumulatively so that's one option the other option is you make changes to the system if enough people form a movement for change the system being changed like it has in other areas of the culture um, and, and you have a third option which is to get out of the system and do something entirely differently which is what homeschooling and unschooling and well schooling is about where parents decide uh, in their own circumstances for their own kids that they want to take control of this themselves and that there are these bigger changes but they don't really want to wait for them to happen their particular circumstances don't encourage them to think they can make the needed changes within the time frame or within the particular institution they've been involved in and there's another and a better way and parents are absolutely entitled to take that choice i mean you know that uh, homeschooling is again uh, it, it's a very broad church it's a very broad concept. It means all kinds of different things. But the heart of it is, is parents and kids taking control of their own education and deciding what's appropriate and how to put that together. And how it works it has everything to do with the passion, the circumstances, and the, also the, um, the evolving skill sets of the parents themselves. As you know, it's a very steep learning curve to be homeschooling your own kids uh, because you, know, you have to learn all sorts of things that you didn't know before. And part of it, too, is shaking free of all the ingrained attitudes you picked up yourself when you were at school about how to do this. So it isn't just that you become teachers in place of the teachers they had. You have to, you have to homeschool yourself to do it. And <laughs> so it, it's, it's a choice that you know, a lot of people aren't taking. And, it's it's still a small proportion, and it, it's a it's, it's a growing proportion, but it's a small proportion still, and and it's small for all kinds of reasons. Not everybody can make it work, can see it working. It takes a massive commitment of time and effort. It often involves, as you found, a big change in your own lifestyle. It it, it isn't just we're going to uh, look after the kids at home now, or you know, you have to think very hard about how you're going to do that and. It involves often changing how you work, how you relate, and all the rest. But it's a choice that people are taking. And the good news from that point of view is that when people get outside the system, they can help to not only benefit their own kids, but they can create models and, uh, and heroes as well for other people in the system and can influence the system from the outside. And it's what I'm always going to say, that you know, education is not a fixed system. It's what you know, theorists refer to as a... a, a um, a complex adaptive system. It's complex in the sense that it, it's, it's made up of countless different elements, institutions, individuals, interest groups. Um, you know, in a national education system, you've got every type of specialist, all sorts of kids, all kinds of families, all sorts of uh, institutional interests, political interests, commercial interests. It's very complex. It's complex more than complicated. I mean, a complicated system, uh, I mean, so the analogy will go, you know, a, a simple system is something like a lever, you know, where uh, you can shift a heavier weight by having a fulcrum towards the one end of a, of a, a rod. 
And if you pull down on the long end, you know, you get an, an, an amplified power at the other end. That's a simple system. A complicated system is made up of lots of simple systems, like an aeroplane. You know, is a complicated system, uh, but it's not thinking for itself uh, or really changing. Um, but a complex system, like a living system, is is evolving as it as it interacts with itself and the environment. You know, you're a complex system. I don't know you, Daniel, that well, but I'm prepared to bet on it. <laughs> No, but human beings are, and, and human social systems are complex systems. They're full of feeling and relationships and interactions and dynamics, and they, they change and they have emergent features that things come from them. Like when I did the TED Talk, for example, in 2006, the first one, I was talking about how the world, nobody could, no, could predict what the world would look like in five years' time. But it's worth remembering that the iPhone didn't come out till the following year. And, uh, and now, here we are, what is it, um, 13 years later. And most people are behaving as if civilization didn't begin till the iPhone came out and it's impossible without it. It's, it's changed everything. Changed, our smartphones changed everything, the way people work, what we're doing now, everything. But that wasn't around in 2006. We're now on the threshold of the uh, widespread uh, development of artificial machine intelligence. You know, there's no doubt about it that your kids will be looking back at pictures of you 30 years from now with your iPhone, you know, with patronizing smiles. I mean, you, you look like Austin Powers, you know, they think, really? <laughs> what was that? Um, we know this is true. Uh, but at the same time, people will be doing work then that we, could, we couldn't have foreshadowed 30 years ago they're doing now. And, you know, the way you earn your living was un, un, impossible, inconceivable. Your grandparents. I mean, how, how how could you live as you live now? Uh, so it is evolving constantly, and, and there are all kinds of refractory elements. When you get new technologies come in, people use it for all sorts of things that nobody anticipated. So it's complex in, in that sense, and constantly adapting. It and it's um, and it's it's dynamic. And education is like that. It is changing in character, and I think we might be about to see some kind of massive shift in the way we do education because of the pervasive spread of digital culture and particularly of machine intelligence, which is not, I believe, intelligence in the sense in which we commonly use the term. It's high, they're highly sophisticated algorithms, but these machines aren't thinking and breathing and feeling and sensing the way we do. So big question it raises, if, if we continue to devolve more and more tasks that previously we thought only human beings can do to machine intelligence, well, what is humanity then? What, is, what are we capable of? What is it that makes us human? And that's, I think, what education should be focusing on from now. Uh, but not, not the things that we can do that can be taken over, but things that, that make us who, who and what we are. And it's partly why we need such a broad conception of education. And I do think, as I said at that original talk, that the, the analogy with climate change is, is exact, that the, we are suffering the effects of climate change because of our tendency over the past 300 years to treat the natural environment as if it were not natural, as if it were um, some kind of impersonal facility that we can treat with chemicals and we can uh, uh, 
ignore the fact that it's a living ecosystem and we're paying a massive price for it. You know, we're degrading soils across the world. We're, we're marrying ourselves in toxic chemicals. Uh, we're seeing the consequences of health for fertility, uh, for the very nature of our existence on the planet. You know, people keep talking about we're going to save the planet and I, I think we should be pretty sanguine about that. I think the planet's going to be fine. You know, shake us off like a rash. You know, what, what, what we're risking is ourselves and the conditions our own, our own being on the planet. And, and it's happened because we have lost touch with the principles on which natural systems operate. And I think we've done the same thing in schools. We've created conditions in schools which are designed for efficiency and for a particular output. And they're not consistent with the natural principles of learning, uh, that learning is social. That, you know, your children are learning French as they are because they're surrounded by people speaking French. And, and, and they're not just learning the language of French, of France, they're learning Frenchness as they do it. You know, they're learning French culture, French sensibilities, the French way of life. And that is the way of it. That's why we, we thrive in certain cultural settings. And, and I think in, in, unless and until we start applying the principles of, uh, of natural growth and recognize that education itself is a living ecosystem, and that it should interconnect with all the rest of our lives, then uh, we'll con continue to make the same mistakes and, and to maintain systems which create more problems than they really eventually will solve. And I think it's urgent that we apply that ecological metaphor to how we look after people in our communities and in our families and in our schooling systems, whether they're national systems or homeschooling systems. And None of these ideas are new, that's, that's the important point. I mean, I certainly have never claimed to originate all the things I talk about. I'm, you know, one in a long line and a, a large gathering of people who've been trying to hoist this flag for a very long time. And there are inspiring examples to draw from all the time. I mean, I spoke recently about the work of Maria Montessori, you know, who at the turn of the last century was doing remarkable work with underprivileged kids in Italy and developed a system of education which has served millions of kids very well since. It's not the only one, but it's one that recognizes the dynamics of natural learning and development. Uh, the progressive movement was always about that, you know, and it's not perfect. It has all its imperfections and it, it has its roots in all sorts of ideas about human growth and sensibility, though, which are still very current. And I think part of the, part of the problem always is that we all seem to suffer from a kind of cultural amnesia, you know, that now, when it comes to raising children properly and providing educational opportunities, it's not like we're trying to find a cure for some fresh disease that we've never encountered before. Like, all scratching our heads thinking, what on earth do we do about this? We know what to do about it. I mean, one of the, one of the things, for example, I've been involved in latterly is uh, like a global campaign on the importance of children's play. And across America, schools have been cutting back on recesses called, you know, playtime. And... And, and, and what they're now discovering, there have been a number of projects, and one in particular is going on in Texas, where they have had an increase. In, you know, they're, they're providing four periods of recess every day. And they're finding kids are behaving better. They're having a better time. They're socializing better. Uh, they're focusing on their work more. And you think, really? What? We're, we're having to talk about this? <laughs> Kids need to play, that they're physical creatures, social creatures, emotional creatures, need to run around, 
they need to develop their imaginations. There's a news report about it. I've been showing it in some recent talks. They have a news crew down at this school in Texas, like reporting from the front line, you know, like they're in some war zone. You know, like, you know, this just in kids found playing in Texas. Like, what? <laughs> when, when did that become a thing? You know, we've lost our minds about this. And so we create these systems which themselves create the problems that we then try to solve. So the, the good news, though, is that there is a chance for system change. Uh, and it, it is evolving. It's happening. It's whether it happens in time for everybody, but it can happen in time for your children. And, you know, you, you, we all have to do that. I think globally, don't we, but at locally. And I mean, it's the old maxim of that. And, and I think that schools can change. Parents can change. We can do what we can where we can, and we have the technology now to connect it into a larger movement, which, by the way, is something that I'm involved in just now. We're working to create a global movement with a platform supporting it to help people get in touch with each other in the way that you've been doing through your work. Uh, but we also want to do that to connect people in the public education systems because there's a lot of goodwill, a lot of expertise, a lot of passion in public education. And for a lot of kids, it remains there only shot it's not just their best shot and you know but i'm all for a mixed economy here in terms of how people solve the problem uh, and so what we're going to try and do is uh, put together you know a, a, an interactive dynamic platform that will give people access to ideas resources people networks and and projects to uh, connect people and, and turn what is i think you know an emerging movement into uh something that can see real change on, on a large scale well if there's any way we can help you with that so ken please let us know if, if there's a website or anything that we can put out for you yeah and uh, well, yeah it's evolving as we speak and, and I, know where, I know where you are now <laughs> <laughs> yes and please take us up on uh, on that offer uh now, so Ken, I don't want to keep you too much longer because uh, it's been an amazing interview and thank you so much for, for sharing all of your insights and your wisdom. Um, I want to close out with a question uh, around, um, you, you've already reached so many people with, with your talks, you know, three TED Talks are amazing. Um, your books, your interviews like this one, podcast, blog posts, newspapers, magazines, the list is endless. Stalking threats, all that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if there was, if there was one person that you could sit down with and educate them around everything that you've been, you know, campaigning for for you know, your whole career, that you think could really make a change, who would that person be? Um, I don't know if there is a single person. You know, um, the. I know, I mean, to give you an example of this, we, we often, in, in education, and I've done it myself, people get preoccupied with particular people, uh, notably in various countries with you know, the current Secretary of State or, or the Head of State, the Prime Minister or the President. And, I mean, I've, I've spent enough time talking to people in those positions to not place my bet there, you know, and, and there are various reasons for it. One is that they come and go. You know, the person that we've become obsessed with for the past four years, for example, as Secretary of State, whoever it happens to be, 
suddenly moves on to something else or some scandal happens or they, they're offered the job they really want if they didn't want education. And then you've got the next one. You know, it, it, it's, um, it's like a hydra, you know, so it, 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 these things just keep springing up. And, um, and, and that's not to say that we shouldn't try to influence people because you do get, you do get people in public office, of course, who are full of integrity and uh, good intentions and, and with a passion for education, they do they do come along, but it's in the nature of things that uh, uh, people who, who go into politics are driven by particular political agendas, and they're typically aligned with party policies, and they have to toe the party line, or whatever, whatever it happens to be. When I did the work in the UK, the report all our futures. Uh, that was commissioned by the Secretary of State of the day, the Labour government of the, state of the day, uh, and they didn't act on the report. And, and we kind of knew they wouldn't, because I think there was a degree of window dressing in commissioning it. But we knew that, and we weren't foolish about it. And uh, we addressed the report to the profession as much as the politicians. Um, but I've spoken to members of that government since, uh, in the past 20 years, who said that we missed a big opportunity, we didn't understand that we didn't read it properly, we're too fixated on what was going on. They are, you know, most politicians have, uh, however good and however passionate they are, they know they have a short shelf, shelf life. They're, they're waiting for the next electoral round. With the following win, they have four years in office in most cases, which means they have two years from when they're elected to do something before they start worrying about the next election. And, then, and they're hoping in the first two years to get some data they can use on the stump for the next two years. You know, so... Uh, and education is a complex, long-term issue, and politics is short-term. So, you know, they're looking for quick wins, you know, low-hanging fruit and other such metaphors. So I always say to people, you know, by all means, deal with the people in power, deal with them, but don't depend on them. And, you know, the real, the real shift comes with a move in public opinion. So, you know, the, the sort of things that, that Greta has unleashed are very important, that Malala has unleashed, are very important, because then politicians start to recalibrate around where the energy is shifting you know, among the, the population and the electorate. Um, so I suppose, you know, I, I mean, I do get the opportunity to talk to people in high office, but, but I don't have them at the top of my list. I mean, I, I'd like to chat to Greta, I think, and I, I have spoken to Malala and to other people whose lived experience has led them uh, to a point where they feel they just have to speak out. And I think it's important for us all to learn from that. And we should be listening more to people, whatever age they happen to be, uh, whose you know, life experience has led them to a point where they feel they have a very important message to share with everybody. And, it, and it's, it's that, isn't it? it? It's that more than massive legislation that get people off their feet and on the street and demanding change. And... I mean, fortunately, I, and I have the opportunity to do it. You know, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of people when I did the book, The Element. I found your passion changes everything. I spoke to all sorts of people uh, who you know, I found inspiring and whose stories I thought other people would find inspiring as well. And the, the, the stories are often not just inspiring, but unexpected. You know, when you see the route people have taken and why they got to do what they did and when. And um, so... You know, it, it, it is often said, you know, that, that uh, you know, nothing changes the world so much as a small group of committed people, indeed, not, that's what Margaret Mead's point, indeed, nothing else ever has. 
And I, I want people to, to realize that, you know, that, 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 that it isn't, and it's, it's sometimes said you can do anything you want. I think there's some limitations to that. I mean, I think that, that, that that's a sloganistic way of saying you can do an awful lot more than you imagine. Um, I mean, I, you know, I would have very much liked, uh, uh, I could imagine um, you know, skiing down, you know, a, a virtually vertical slope. I'd love to do that. I'm not going to do it. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I can imagine what it would have been to have played in a World Cup final. I haven't lived with an ambition to play soccer, but I can imagine what it would be. Um, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so you have to have some sense, you know, of, of you know, that, that, that this isn't just pure Pollyanna thinking. But the fact is people are capable of very much more than they often think they are. And it, and it is a question of attitude as much as talent and determination as much as circumstance. And... And that's really what education should be providing people with, a sense that they, you know, we're not on the planet for very long when it comes to it. It can seem very long at times. I mean, I remember particularly when I was studying algebra at school, life seemed interminable, you know, but I can, I can imagine that, you know, but when you look back, it, it sort of passed over very quickly. I remember years ago, there was a, a, an American ambassador to the UK who, who wrote a very interesting and funny memoir right at his time there. And the, the, the duties he had to perform, and he said it wasn't until he'd spent five days uh, at a test match at Lord's Cricket Ground that he fully grasped the concept of eternity. And I can <laughs> see that. <laughs> you know, these things are subjective in the end. But you can, but you, can, you know, we're not here for that long when it comes to it. And, and you know, we can make much more of a contribution to our own lives and to other people's lives than we often imagine if we have, you know, the vision and the determination and the self-belief and the, and the permission to do it. And education at its best should give all of us that. Ken, thank you. Sir Ken, excuse me. Sir Ken. <laughs> I only insist on the title with my children. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and I'm sure they adhere to that. Um, it's been it's been incredible. Uh, it's been an amazing honour to to speak with you. And no, thank it's a you pleasure, so much. Man. Great pleasure. Thank um, you. Well, so congratulations for all you're doing, by the way. Uh, not just for your own kids. You seem like a wonderful group of young people. Um, but you know, but what you're doing through the work for all the other people who are considering or being inspired to go down a similar sort of path. It's important. You're doing a great job. Thank you so much. And it's people like yourself that will hopefully bring many, many people to, uh, to the summit and um, help spread the message. So thanks again Great. for your time, Sikim. Great pleasure. Hey, guys, thank you so much for, um, for listening and uh, being a part of, uh, of that interview with, with at Sir Ken. Um, yeah, it's very poignant listening back to, to that conversation, watching back and, um, you know, uh, seeing Sir Ken uh, and answering those questions that I was posing to him and getting his insights. Um, truly thankful for everything he did in, um, in his field of work. Um, you know, uh, like I said, I wanted to release this to keep this conversation alive and to keep people 
honoring his work. And um, I, I felt uh, strongly that, um, you know, I, I have this platform and I know there's thousands of people out there that are going to get some value from this. So um, I hope you, um, I hope you go and check out Sir Ken's work. Uh, you, you can go to his website. It's um, sirkenrobinson.com. And if you go forward slash store, that's where you'll find his books. Um, he's got uh, five books, which I highly recommend. Um, you, Your Child in School was his most recent one, which again, challenges uh, your, your mindsets. Uh, and he's, his most famous one, The Element or Finding Your Element, um, very inspirational books and um, will help you understand you know, more, more about yourself, but also how important it is to help guide our kids to finding their element rather than just you know, perhaps falling into a trap that we might have fallen into when we were uh, coming of age and trying to build a career and you, know, you just get into that one, one job that you score and you end up sitting there for 20, 30 years or something. Uh, you know, the world is changing. The, the world is a much more um, dynamic place nowadays thanks to technology and everything's completely different except our education system. So this was the fight he was fighting. He was shouting from the rooftops for many, many years, decades, and um, really no one uh, in, in the position to make change would listen. Um, maybe they would listen, but they, you know, what has changed, right? Um, maybe, maybe some countries um, have, have changed, but I don't know. On the whole, we all know where, where we stand when it comes to the education system is, is still as it was and um, you know kids are put uh, put to task for uh, longer hours um, and expected um, higher grades and higher levels of stress who's this serving really um, I'll leave it there guys um, thanks again for listening uh, you know reach out anytime uh, if you want to talk more about this and do your best to keep this conversation alive and um, honor Sir Ken's work um, Thanks so much, and I'll, uh, I'll catch you on the next show.